0: Hello, my name is Dan Badger, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Words of Endearment with Bill Coker. For the fifth prayer in this series, we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15-20, through 20, and chapter 3, verses 14-21. through 21. This sermon, titled, Paul's Prayer for the Church, was preached at World Gospel Church in April of 2007. As we hear Paul's prayer for the early church, know that these requests are being addressed for us today note the richness of paul's petition as we apply it to our lives now let's hear from bill
1: this week i was doing some reading and some of the devotional stuff i have and i read a portion of a letter written by dietrich bonhoeffer from prison i'd read uh, his letters uh, most of them a long time ago But it was interesting, he made a statement in this letter, he said, to live in the light of the resurrection. That is what Easter means, to live in the light of the resurrection. And when I read that, I thought, well, I know exactly where I need to go. Because I'd been thinking about one of Paul's prayers and uh, you'll find it in the book of Ephesians. And uh, it occurs actually in two places there. It begins in chapter 1 and concludes basically over in chapter 3. So I wanted to share that with you and have you think with me in the light of what Bonhoeffer suggests that the meaning of Easter is, how do we live in the light of the resurrection? So Paul wrote centuries ago, for this reason, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And continuing in chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be empowered to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think according to the power that is working within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, this happens to be another letter written from prison. This time, Paul was imprisoned and writing to uh, what is now known to the church at Ephesus. But originally, in the oldest manuscripts, the words in Ephesus and the beginning verses of uh, this book uh, were not there. And uh, it is suggested and with good reason that probably this letter wasn't directed to the local church in Ephesus, but actually uh, extended probably to uh, many of the churches in the area of uh, Asia Minor where Ephesus was the largest city. One of the reasons why that's felt is because in this first chapter, Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith. Well, he didn't hear about their faith in Ephesus. He was the founding pastor of the movement of God in Ephesus. He certainly knew about their faith. So that and a number of other things in the letter have caused many people to think that perhaps, and some would even suggest, that this was Paul's swan song. This was his letter not to a church, but it was his letter to the church with a capital C. And when you read the letter, you'll notice that he doesn't address any kind of particular things. Most of his letters are what are called occasional letters. He was responding to something that was going on or needed to go on in that particular church or that particular city. But in this one, he does not do that. He really gives those general principles and statements. And we could take the whole book if we had the time this morning and this afternoon and this evening to just go right on through it and notice that what Paul is talking to them about is exactly what Bonhoeffer was saying, that how do we live in the light of the resurrection? And Paul is wanting to tell them what is necessary and vital for them. If you take the book of Ephesians itself, you'll discover it sort of falls right in the middle. Three chapters have to do with things that deal with life in Christ or the doctrinal ideas that Paul is sharing. The last three chapters have to do with life in Christ and how do you live this life that is indicated in those early chapters and so forth and so on. So the first half, he's talking about life in Christ, and he begins in chapter 1, talking about the fact that God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because he has chosen them, and for what reason? That they may be holy and without blemish before him in love. In fact, when you begin reading in verse 3 of chapter 1, in the Greek text, it's all one sentence. And Paul wrote like many Germans write. It just goes on and on and on. And uh, it just continues. And you find that even in some of what I've read to you uh, already. So he talks to them about the uh, the praise that he brings to God for his blessings, but then he talks, he uh, begins his prayer, and he gets carried away. And often Paul does that. It's interesting. He's talking about sudden something, and suddenly uh, a rabbit runs across his foot, and away he goes, chasing that trail. And and he does it such beauty, in such a beautiful manner and with such powerful words. And so he does that here. He's talking about him and he begins there with this prayer and he says, for this reason, having heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints. And he begins praying for these people and he gets toward the end of the prayer and he thinks about the greatness of Christ and he ends up not so much praying for the people as he's talking about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he breaks into the fact, but you know, there was a time in your life when you were dead in your trespasses and sin and he's got another rabbit trail and he's running that one. And I don't mean anything negative about that. I mean, he just simply, the flow of his thoughts, he can hardly talk about the things he wants them to know or hear or even his prayer that he comes to something that immediately sends him in another direction. So in chapter 2, he talks about the redemption that is theirs in Christ. He goes on to talk about the reconciliation between Gentiles and Jews. He ends up at the beginning of the third chapter talking about the fact that these Gentiles have experienced the revelation of God's grace. And finally, in verse 14 of chapter 3, he comes back and you hear him saying, now, for this reason, in fact, one of the things that ties the prayers together is that three times in the first chapter when he starts his praise, says, for this reason. And then he gets back to it at the beginning of the third chapter and says, for this reason, and then takes off again in another direction. And finally, in verse 14, he comes back to it again and says, for this reason. So in the first part of this book, Paul is talking to them about the things that are vital to their faith and their life in Christ. The last three chapters, he's talking to them about how do they live their life in Christ. Not in terms of some kind of seclusion, but how do you live it in the midst of uh, circumstances that are anything other than, than helpful or contributory to one's spiritual life. So, as you begin reading in chapter 4, you'll notice he talks about how do you live in the church. And he gives them a lot of things about what's necessary for their relationship, living their lives together in the church. And then he talks about, well, how do you live in the world? And he begins uh, sharing with them the things that are so different about their lives and how do they relate to the world around them. He ends up talking about how do you live in the family. He talks about husbands and wives and, and children and fathers and and uh mothers and he ends up finally. But how do you live in a world where there's such conflict and the battles rage around you and the powers are greater than you think you have strength for. I love this book. Uh, that's why I preached 64 sermons on it the first year I was here. Uh, you know, it's just a fantastic book. You can go in so many directions. But what I wanted you to hear this morning, I want to come back to it, because I wanted to look at Paul's prayer. As we think about the great prayers of the Bible, how do you think about it without thinking of those prayers that Paul prayed? There are so many of them, and and they are so rich and so full. But I wanted you to look at this one in Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1 and then finishing up in chapter 3. Actually, what you discover is that in chapter 1, Paul is talking to them about the revelation of God that's vital to their spiritual lives. And then in chapter 3, he talks about how there is a realization in their lives of that revelation that has been manifested to them. So if you have your Bible open and want to follow along or you want to just listen, think with me as as we follow Paul's trail at this point and listen to his prayer and think that if he's writing really not to a single church, but he's writing actually to a number of churches, not addressing himself to particular problems, but addressing himself to the concern that they all have, how do they live their faith? And he begins by saying, I do not cease praying for you, making mention of you that God, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And where else can Paul begin in talking about life in Christ than the fact that that life is that which God has shown us. It's not that which we have found for ourselves or even can understand for ourselves. Paul recognizes the fact that if we are to know anything about God and his will, God will have to reveal that to us because we do not have access to God. First of all, he lives at that supernatural plane that we've talked about before uh, during this, this school year. And so Paul recognizes simply the fact that these people cannot know things divine unless they're divinely revealed. So he begins praying that they may have a knowledge of God, but that knowledge will come because God gives to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Um, In your Bible, you may find spirit with a little s. And uh, if, you, if you translate the Greek of it, he prays that they may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. But uh, with many scholars, I agree that he's not talking about a spirit, namely their own or some kind of spirit that may belong to them. He's talking about the spirit because the only way we can have knowledge of God is that God reveals himself. And uh, along with many, I would say let's capitalize that S because he's talking about the spirit of wisdom and revelation. When you go back into the end of John's gospel, where Jesus is giving his parting words with the disciples and teaching them that last lesson that they needed to learn or lessons they needed to learn, you remember that he said that when the Holy Spirit come, he would teach them all things. He would reveal to them the truths of God. And I think that's what Paul is catching hold of at this particular point. There is no way to know God except he reveals himself. That doesn't make any difference how bright we may be. How many PhDs or doctorates we can put behind our names. None of us has any access to God that what we know about him is that which he reveals of himself. And as I've said a number of times in your hearing, I say it once again, you stop and think about it. You don't even know what I'm thinking unless I tell you. So how would we know what God is thinking at least we have personal contact with one another and you may know me well enough to know that you have some idea of what I'm thinking about. But actually it takes, it takes my own expression for you to understand it, to hear it. So here is Paul talking to these people and he's praying that God, the God of glory, the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this God would reveal to them through his spirit what they need to know about living. That's one side of the, of the coin. It seems to me there's a second side as well. While we are dependent upon God's revelation of himself, it seems also that we have to acknowledge that we ourselves have to participate in that. We recognize our limitations, that to be sure, but we recognize also our need to participate in the reception of the message that gives to, uh, God gives to us. The limitation is there. And in spite of the fact that sometimes we're led to believe by some people that they really know far more than they do know, and they actually put it in the guise of being very intelligent, the fact is, when we come to talk about the meaning and the purpose of life, there is no individual, however many PhDs he may carry behind his name, who can really tell you the answer to that. And I'm a bit appalled when I stop to think how ignorant people think that we really are And I'm I'm more deeply appalled when I think that in our own country now, we've come to the place where what we say is no one else has a right to express their understanding of the meaning of life except those who are what they would call non-religious. I was listening to an interview this week. uh, Mars Hill tapes I receive every other month and generally they're interviewing an author who has written a book that has to do with religion and culture and society and so forth and I was listening to a man who uh, was a philosophy professor in Kansas had got his PhD at Southern Cal and while he was there at Southern Cal he raised a question that had to do with people who were around the college, many of them indigent who did not have uh, enough to support themselves to live upon. And so he wanted to write a letter to the mayor of Los Los Angeles and suggest to him that the, the city ought to do something about these people who have such dire needs. So he wrote his letter and he said he gave it to some of his friends to read before he mailed it to the mayor. And they said, don't send it because your letter is religious and the mayor will not listen to a letter that is written from a religious perspective. And he said, that started me to thinking why not? Why is my religious faith external to the factors of politics and society? As a matter of fact, as he continued to think about that, he he arrived at a point that I've shared with you before, that when you come right down to it, actually, uh, every individual has some idea, some worldview And uh, why should a religious worldview be any more unacceptable than a secular worldview? In fact, I will go farther than that. And I will say I'm tired of hearing secularists denounce religion when they have one. A religion is a system of faith. And every atheist has a system of faith. He has a religion. And his religion is as much his worldview as mine is. So why is ours unacceptable? Why is it that we can stand up in the public here in America and be led to believe that if we have any persuasion that there is a divine creator and that there's a meaning and a purpose in life, we are by that very fact ruled out of being able to speak to the needs of our day. And in the meantime, the secularist who has absolutely no more information with his science PhD than anybody who doesn't have such a PhD to know what exists in terms of the greater outreaches of of eternity. They say, well, scientific method, scientific method teaches you nothing about God, whether he is or he isn't. It is purely dealing with the earth, with nature, with the things that we encounter. It doesn't, it doesn't deal with the other issues. So Paul is praying for these people that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And as I read that, I thought, yes, that's because apart from that, who knows anything with reference to the, to the divine or to eternity or to the meaning and purpose and direction of life? We all have a worldview, and we may choose to have a worldview that limits everything only within the boundaries of this creation. And we have a right to do that. What we do not have a right to do is to exclude people whose views may actually go beyond that. And I want to appeal to you if you're a professing Christian, for God's sake, don't apologize for our religion. Don't excuse yourself from getting involved in a conversation because your worldview is as valid as any other worldview in terms of the right to speak. Paul says, I pray that you may have the spirit of wisdom and Revelation, and that's exactly what we need. If God does not reveal himself to man, man has no opportunity to know anything about his origin or his purpose in life. And in spite of all of our scientific knowledge, and thank God for it, I'm not here assaulting scientists. I'm here talking about the fact that science knows nothing about God. That is a religious question, and if you say it doesn't exist, that's a religious answer. But Paul is talking about something that these people knew and believed. And he says to them, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so that's what Paul is after as he writes to the church. He wants them to know God. And so he prays for them that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. The eyes of their mind, the eyes of their their being would, would be so focused and enlightened that they might understand about God. And he talks about three things that he wants them to know about God. First of all, he says, I want you to know about God's purpose, the hope of his calling. And that's a vital question. What is God's purpose for my life? I enjoy my life. I've lived it as fully as I know how to live it. As a matter of fact, I cling as strongly to it. And all of us do as anyone else would do. Frankly, aside from people who are miserable, we think life is a wonderful thing and we enjoy all of it. But the question that comes to any of us who thinks is, but what is it about? Leo Tolstoy, in his confession, dealt with this very question. What does it mean? And where do I go to find purpose for my life and my meaning? And Tulsoy, who walked away from his religious faith and his college days and only later returned to it, looked in many places and through many of his academic subjects to find some answer to it, but ended up finding it really in the God that he had left as a college student. Paul prays that you might know the hope of his calling. And that's what we want to know. What has God made us for? What is his purpose for our lives? To what has he called us? What does God want us to be? I can remember we had four children as in our home when uh, we were young. And uh, one of the things I wanted them to deal with is what did they want to be in their lives? What did they want to, to become? And we saw them get their education, and we tried to give them the things that were necessary because it was of concern to to Anne and to me that our children should have some idea of where they're going with life, not to live it in some kind of a casual way that when you come to the end of it, you haven't realized anything out of it except a multiplicity of experiences. Where does it go? What does it mean? Where is it headed? And if God has created us, to what has he called us? If God has chosen us, as Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, to what has he chosen us? What does he want? Why has he made us? And if he made us in his image... What did he have in mind? So Paul says, you know, I do not cease praying for you people so that you might, through the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and through the spirit of revelation, you might come to know what God's hope for you is to what he has called you. May I suggest that that's still the most important question any of us could ask. What does God expect of my life? What, what should my life be? And how do we live? You can say, well, I'm no longer a child making up my mind what I want to be. I'm an adult and maybe even advanced in my adult years. Well, that may be true. It doesn't make any difference how old you are. Where are you going? Where are you going? Does the road lead nowhere? Or does it lead to something that the one who has made us intended to be. Paul says... I pray for you. I pray that you might come to understand God's purpose as he's revealed it to us. The second thing he says is, I pray that you would learn God's provision for you, the riches of of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. I want you to know all that God has provided. He begins the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, by simply pointing out, as I mentioned a moment ago, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessing. There is nothing that God has withheld from his creation. Everything that God wants us to become, he's made possible because he's given us a provision for us to know, for us to be in relationship with him, and for us to learn. So this God is at work. He is at work revealing himself. Sometimes he does it in nature. This morning, Ann and I sat down at the breakfast table, and I looked out the window, and I called her attention. There were four deer right outside our window. We love living out there and watching the deer. And we watch the squirrels and sometimes the coyotes when they dare to come out. You see the beauty of nature around you, and, and sometimes it's almost Overwhelming. I agree with those people that say that sometimes, even more so than in church, you can stand in a place and see the beauty around you and feel yourself enraptured with the God who has made these things. I lived in Kentucky for 25 years. And often preached in a lot of different churches. And so I'd be out traveling in the fall or the spring. And I still love the fall more than all. Because with the leaves changing in the mountains of Kentucky, that is something. And growing up in New Orleans, we didn't have mountains. So we had one hill in City, in Audubon Park built by the WPA. I think I always said they did that so a kid would know what a hill looks like. We were below sea level. There's no hills around there. And maybe that's part of it. But I've driven through West Virginia in the spring or in the fall or in Kentucky and I've I've looked at the magnificence of creation and I found myself worshiping. How could you do other than that? Paul's praying for these people that they would realize the provisions that God has made. He's done it in the world around us. He's done it in so many different ways that are tangible that we can see and touch and and smell and feel. Those things are there but he's also done it in ways that you can't see. And there's a presence of God that when it comes, you don't explain it. You surrender yourself to it. You don't explain it, you enjoy it. You don't explain it, you find yourself moved by it. Paul prays for these people that they may realize that God has purposes but he's made provision that these purposes might be fulfilled. And when we've been looking at Christ and his coming and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven, all of these things are part of what God has provided for us that we might know him and his purpose and his will. But of course the question comes up, but can God really do all of that? And so Paul talks about his potency because you'll notice that he talks about his power and his strength and his might. In fact, if you could take the Greek text here and read it, it's just amazing, both in this prayer and the one that occurs in chapter three, the wo- how these words are there. And he reuses them in both, both of these sections. He talks about the power of God and the working of God and the strength of God and the might of God. And even when he uses the word translated Able. sometimes it translates it's the word power from which we get dunam, the Greek word dunamis. We get dynamite. And sometimes he uses another word, "iskus," which actually talks about might. And he says, you have been empowered by might to do this sort of thing. So Paul talks about God's potency, his power, his strength, and his might. Everything that he has promised, he's able to do. Everything that you face and I face in our life, he is able to carry us through. Every need that arises, there's an answer to the need. He doesn't always answer the way that we want him to answer, but then he's God, and he knows what we do not know. Not only does he not answer always like we want, sometimes he answers even when we haven't asked, and he gives us things that we can never imagine And there's something about it that just simply is not only exhilarating, but it's moving. So the God who has a purpose has made a provision. And the God who makes a provision has the power to do and to be everything that is necessary for us. So in this first part of the prayer, Paul is praying for a revelation to the church. And that's interesting to me. He's praying for the church. He's not praying for people who don't know God. He's praying for the church and praying that we in the church would know these things and that God would reveal them to us. In fact, we could say maybe we're the only ones that he can successfully reveal to because we're the ones who are listening. We're the ones he has our attention and so he can speak to us. But in the second part in chapter 3, he wants them not only to have a revelation, he wants them to realize it in their lives. One of the beautiful things I find about walking with Christ is not just simply we have a lot of stuff he's teaching us, but, we're, but all of these things are there so that in some sense or another, there might be a realization that comes to us, an experience, a personal relationship. I still think that's really amazing. There are a lot of people who wouldn't care whether they knew me or not. There are a lot of people who would not uh, go a step out of their way to have any kind of relationship with me. But the God who has made me and has made you, this is the God who wants to be in a relationship with you and me. And so he's not going to just give us a set of teachings to know about him but he's going to give us that realization where the power that he speaks that Paul speaks of it actually becomes personalized so look what he says in this second one that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being that's God's will You think about that, and it seems to me that what Paul is talking about is that it's not enough that God wants to make us to be alive. He wants us to be adequate, He wants there to be an abundance in our lives. And so that's what Paul is praying for here. These people already know Christ. They've come into a relationship with Christ. And that new life that Paul talks about in so many places, they've experienced that kind of life. Because in chapter 2, he says, You once were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now that's no longer true because you have been begotten again. And, and by faith, God has delivered you into something. Now here he is, still praying for these very people. And he says, You know, I know what you've experienced. I know know what you know, but I'm praying that God will deepen the source of that knowledge in your life and along with it, the realization of what it's about. So here in this second part, he, he talks about the power of the spirit, not just that we might be alive, but that we might, we might be adequate for life. Boy, that's a word, isn't it? To be adequate for life. If I understand what that means, it means that not only when things are going well am I adequate for that, but when things are going terribly, I'm adequate for that as well. And one day when we come to face death itself, we will not be inadequate to face death. We will be ready to meet it. And we will be able to meet it with victory So look at what Paul says. The power of the Spirit. What's the aim of all of that? So that we might be strengthened in our inner being. We we spend so much time thinking about the externals of life. We spend so much time thinking about those are the things that are really important. But the truth of it is, those are not the things that count at all. You can have everything that is to be possessed if you want to think about it like that. And I think of people who have got wealth beyond you and I, what you and I can even imagine. You know, you read about this guy that went on the rocket up to the to the space shuttle, a billion, multi-billionaire who's paid his way to ride the space shuttle up uh, uh, up there there to the station and, and the outside of our our orbit, or outside of our, I don't know the technical term, but certainly outside of our atmosphere. And he's up there. I don't know what it is to have billions of dollars. I don't know what it is to live in mansions. I don't know what it is to have servants waiting upon me for my beck and call. And I don't know what it is to do a lot of things. But I do know this, that a lot of people who know those things do not have anything inside that makes them worthwhile. There's only so much you can buy with money there's only so much you can do with opportunities there's so much that you can think with education and all of these things have their place and they're good but Paul says I pray that in your inner person you will be strengthened because that's the only thing that really matters it's the only thing that counts it's not what you got on you, one old preacher said, it's what you got in you that counts. And you know, we take a lot of care. I do, I try to look nice when I come to preach to you on Sunday mornings. I wanna wear a nice nice clothes, have a tie that looks halfway decent. I want to look nice. I've never gone around deliberately wanting to look ugly. No, except in those areas where we have no choice. You know, take that as it comes. I dare say in most churches today, more time was spent thinking about how we looked when we go to church than how we look on the inside, who we are, what we are. Some of the most miserable people in the world are people who have much. You know, I think we ought, to, we ought to be weeping for this Anna Smith. She's dead now. But let's weep for Britney Spears. We ought to weep for her. Manipulated, used... And the day will come when she'll be thrown aside just like others are. Because the world doesn't care except for what she exposes or what she shows and does. I'd like to think that life is deeper. and means more than the size of a woman's breasts. And how willing she is to show it what's inside of a person like that pray for britney spears she's in a tailspin and the reason she's in a tailspin is she lost whatever meaning and purpose there may have been one time in her life she's an object now so the casinos are taking bets on who fathers her next child Isn't that a wonderful aspect of life? Paul says that you might be strengthened in the inner person because that's who we really are. The aim of it is there. The effect is that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And the result is that we are rooted and grounded in love. That's what Paul is praying for. That's what Paul is anxious for the church. Not only the power of the Spirit, but the perception of the saints. I'm sorry, I get carried away and I forget time. And I can't read the clock because the light shines on it. I thought about him having moved the clock, but I don't want him to move it. (laughs) The power of the Spirit, but secondly, the perception of the saints. He says that you may be empowered to comprehend. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? The ability to see the full dimensions of what God has for us. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't say what it is, the height and depth or length and breadth of what? He doesn't say anything about it. Could it be he's talking about life itself, that you would begin to see all of these dimensions of life? That's really the richness of being in Christ, isn't it? Or having Christ to be in us, that we begin to see the dimensions of life, whereas before sometime we had only that singular dimension that we looked at. Could it mean faith and love, that the full dimensions of what faith is all about are the full dimensions of love? That's so important to us. That was so important to us. That's what we want to know. That's what we need to know. The ability to see those dimensions, the the ability to grasp the mystery of what God has revealed to us. Notice what he says, that you may know what surpasses knowledge. Boy, if there seems to be some kind of conflicting statement, to know what is beyond knowing, how can that be? And yet, that's what the Spirit of God does in us. He enables us to see and to understand what otherwise we can. not And then lastly, he talks about, and this is the most amazing of all, the perfection of, of, of our salvation, filled with all the fullness of God. How does a human being preach about that? filled with all the full that's an absurdity how could we be filled with the fullness of god is he saying not that we're going to contain all of god that's obvious because god is infinite but does it mean that all that there is of us can be full of god you can take this 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 offering tray and you can go over to the pacific ocean or to the atlantic ocean if you've got that in your hand you can dip it down in there and you can fill that tray up with the ocean yet you know you haven't filled it with all of the ocean because the ocean is so much so much bigger than all of that And I think maybe what God is saying through Paul is that, no, we can't contain all there is of him, but all there is of us can be filled with him. In the same way that 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 plate can be filled with the Pacific Ocean without ever holding even a small amount of it. Paul says, I pray that you may know the fullness of God, the fullness of God's grace the fullness of God's love to be filled to that kind of fullness is God's will now here's my question to you is this just a prayer or is a possibility you know I could pray to be six feet tall that's just a prayer I know it's not possible unless God wants to do something really unusual so is this just a prayer or is it a possibility notice how Paul ends the prayer now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us unto him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. It's almost as if Paul is saying to these people listen, I know that what I've written to you this prayer that I pray for you I know it seems so impossible but I want you to understand that the one to whom we are praying is able to do more than we can ask or we can thank. Many years ago I read a book by uh, Paul Reese on prayer and life's highest. And I went back and I was glancing through that book again this past week looking Uh, particularly at what he had to say about Paul's prayers. In fact, the book focuses on Paul's prayers. And in this chapter, he, he has something that he quotes from a Welsh pastor. He defines Abel like this, and he takes the letters, God is almighty, God is boundless, God is limitless, and God is everlasting. So, when it says he is able to do more than you ask or think, it's because he is almighty, he is boundless, he is limitless, and he is everlasting. And this is the God who calls us to live after Easter in such a way that the light of the resurrection transforms us into something far more than we can be what a beautiful prayer may I urge you to read it again this week the first three chapters of Ephesians will take in the prayer along with the things that surround it but read it again and listen to what the spirit says to you would you take just a moment before we sing our closing hymn would you think about this prayer But I don't want you to think about it just in the sense that Paul was praying for the church long ago. But I want you to think about it as though Paul were here in our midst this morning. And he were to say to us these very same words. For this reason I bow my knees. And I'm praying for you what is it that God is saying to you and me as we think about this prayer we think about its significance its meaning and what God wants to do and would you would you really just bring it down to the point of yourself this prayer is for me it's prayer for me so what does it mean How am I to understand it? How am I to realize it? Take a moment.
0: Thank you for listening. Please send any comments to Bill and Ann. Their email address is found in the show notes. We would love to hear your feedback. We encourage you to check out Bill's books listed in the show notes. We hope this time has been a blessing for you and you will tune in next week to continue this series about prayers of the Bible on Words of Endearment with Bill Coker.